Turn your Bibles uh, to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, if I may, uh, may I ask you all to stand with me. May I, uh, may I ask you all to stand with me and we'll, we'll read verses 12 to verses 14. 12, 13, and 14, all right? So follow along with me. And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and have chosen this place to myself for an house of sacrifice. If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves, and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, and will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. You may now take your seats. Being a Christian, we have a lot of great blessings that God bestows upon our lives. Even just looking at my personal life, I can look at my health. I might not be the healthiest man alive, but I have a fully functioning body. I don't have a chronic illness. I have a, and then extending to my family, all of my family is healthy. There are other benefits and blessings that God gives to us, but one of the greatest blessings that God bestows upon believers is revival. Anybody who was here in 2011, a lot of them think fondly of the 2011 teen camp because during that teen camp, there were teens who were saved. There were teens called to a a full-time ministry. There was a spirit of revival during that year. Now, as a way of illustrating this, supposing, all right, I, I, I think I can make this illustration. Everybody here has had some experience cooking or baking. Some are better than others. Some are not very good. But ne- nevertheless, all of us here have experienced cooking. So supposing in my illustration that the greatest, the most legendary baker came up to me one day, and he was strutting around Surrey, and then he saw me for some reason, and then thought that I was a capable young man. And so he, he goes up to me and gives me his secret recipe for the greatest chocolate chip cookie. And now, I don't know of any man or woman who doesn't like a good chocolate chip cookie. I know I have a friend who loves chocolate a lot. <laughs> Tadala. Anyways, obviously intrigued, I take that recipe and I try to replicate it for myself. This is the, the, the greatest baker of all time came up to me and gave me this awesome recipe. Of course I would try it. But important to note here, a recipe can only achieve its greatest success if everything is followed. If every ingredient that was necessary was used and if every single technique was followed to the T. Supposing I took that recipe and being the, the genius that I am, I start to dismantle the recipe he gave me. I start looking at the ingredients, and I think to myself, I can make this even better. The the greatest baker, I'm the greatest baker. So I I start dismantling his recipe that he gave me. I look at the ingredient, I see eggs. Eggs for a cookie, I don't think you would need eggs, so I just throw that away. You don't need eggs for a cookie. Then I look at the salt, and I know because I'm so smart, salt brings out the flavor in food, right? And so instead of putting just a tablespoon, I put the whole jar in because that's the maximum flavor will be drawn out because of my logic. 
Then I look at the third ingredient, yeast. And yeast is supposed to uh, make, the, make the pastry rise up, right? And so because I love chocolate chip cookies so much, I just put the whole cup of yeast in there. Now, these three omissions and these three changes that I made to the recipe, even though I followed every other thing from that recipe, but because I changed those three things, the eggs, yeast, and salt, instead of making the world's greatest chocolate chip cookie recipe, I made the world's greatest abomination. I pulled them out of the oven, and I look at this burnt piece of cookies, and then I taste them and say, these are terrible. These are terrible. These are, this, that guy swindled me. That guy tricked me. What kind of greatest chocolate chip cookie is this? But looking at the whole story, who, is, who here is to blame? Do we blame that baker who gave that recipe? Or do we blame me, the one who failed in following the clearly laid out instructions? Now, that was a theoretical recipe for the greatest chocolate chip cookie of the world. But in this verse and passage that we just read, we have the recipe for revival. Now, looking at verse 14 specifically, let's look at each ingredient that is necessary to see revival in our country today. But before we get into it, let us just open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this message that you gave to me. I pray, Lord, that you would... Uh, help me omit anything that doesn't need to be said. And I pray, Lord, that I would speak exclusively your words, Lord, and what you would have me to say. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, fill me with your spirit and enable me to preach your word. And I pray that you would speak to all of our hearts today. And I pray this all in your name. Amen. So the nation of Israel at this point found themselves in a situation where uh, just recently the, the, the Solomon just built a temple. And God gave them this recipe in verse 14 that if, if there happened to be a drought, if God happened to send locusts to devour all of their food, all that the nation of Israel had to do was to follow this recipe in 2 Chronicles 7.14. Now, look at me. Uh, let's read that verse again. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. This verse is an example of a conditional promise. If you do these things, if you do these things, then this will be the result. If you do this, this, then this will be the result. And Israel... God said that if they do these four things listed in verse 14, then God will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. Israel was given such a blessed recipe, yet throughout the duration of the divided kingdoms, they failed to follow that at all. Read with me in verse 19 to 22 in the same chapter. But if ye turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you, and shall go and serve other gods and worship them, then will I pluck them up by the roots out of my land which I have given them. And this house which I have sanctified for my name will I cast out of my sight, and will make it to be a proverb and a byword among all nations. And this house which is high shall be an astonishment to everyone that passeth by it, so that he shall say, Why hath the Lord done thus unto this land and unto this house? And it shall be answered, because they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, 
which brought them forth out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore hath he brought all this evil upon them. They received such an incredible recipe, but they completely just threw it out and did what I did, massacred that recipe. Israel, later on, the nation of Judah, because they decided to do their own thing, because they decided to follow other gods, they were taken into captivity. Israel was taken by uh, the Assyrians. Judah was taken in by the Babylonians. Because they forsook God, God struck, struck them with the rod of wrath. Israel, instead of humbling themselves, they lifted up themselves in pride. Instead of praying, they would consult their own heart and not the will of God. Instead of seeking God's face, they would rather seek the face of the kings of other pagan nations for help. Instead of turning from their wicked ways, they reveled in them. Now again, I pose the question, who was, the, who was to blame for the destruction? Was it God who gave them a way out of this recipe? Or was it the Israelites who turned away spitefully from God? Now, unfortunately, the state of Christianity today mimic the state of the Israelites from back then. If you observe the state of the churches today, there are many that resemble that wicked Corinthian church that Paul ministered to. Churches that, have, that, just, that just house sin and wickedness within the confines of their buildings. Many churches today have lost their effect, have lost their influence on the world. In Matthew 5.13, we are supposed to be the salts of the earth. But we have been failing in that area. We have lost our savor. The churches today that have the highest influences on society are nothing more than a glorified nightclub. You go to a church like, uh, I can't even name someone at the top of my head. There's one in New York City, if I, the name escapes me. But famous celebrities go to this one, one being Justin Bieber. And I just remember one time after a service, they were, uh, Justin Bieber and the, the pastor got caught in a nightclub just taking shots. What kind of leadership is that? That is supposed to be one of the biggest churches trying to uh, reach the, the world with the gospel, but they're like that. They have no influence on the people. The churches have been failing in influencing the world. And because of our lack of influence, there is a rise of moral depravity in our societies. We look at our world and see all the immoralities, the injustices, the wickedness prevailing. Look at other countries in the Middle East, terrorism abounds, and the list goes on. It's normal nowadays for abortion to be legal and to be a common practice. In some countries, bestiality is permitted. Pedophilia is commonplace in Hollywood, especially. It's commonplace in, in all areas of society. There are so many predators and, and pedophiles in our communities. Rape, incest, incestuous acts prevail. And we look at this wickedness in the world, and as Christians, we look at it, and unfortunately, we give up. We wonder why the world is in the state that it is in, but we can stop wondering. Because the reason the world is, is what it is, is because we have stopped and we have forgotten to fulfill the God-given responsibility of reaching out to the world. 
That conditional promise that was made to the Israelites in 714 applies to us as well. The first three words says, if my people, and if you are here tonight and you have accepted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you are God's people. This country, Canada, and every other country needs spiritual healing. We need reformation. And the cure, the only cure to the world's problems is not some sort of protest, is not a riot, but it is the gospel. That is the only ailment for, what is prevail, what the, for the illness that is prevailing in our societies, for sin. And if we truly desire a revival, we must follow the recipe of first, 2 Chronicles 7.14. Now ask yourself this, are you doing your best to follow this recipe, or have you unknowingly imitated the example of the Israelites? Have you did your best to follow God's word, or have you turned away? Now, according to this verse, there are four ingredients, and the first one is to humble ourselves. Now, turn with me to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs 6. Proverbs 6, verses 16 to 17. And it says, These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. What is the first thing that is mentioned in verse 17? A proud look. The first abomination listed above all the others was a proud look, was pride. This verse clearly states how much God abhors and hates pride among his people. So much so that it, is, that it is considered an abomination. Personally, there are some things that I find an abomination. I think the act of abortion is abomination. The act of bestiality is an, uh, is an abomination. But to God, pride and a proud look is an abomination to his perfect standards. Now turn with me to Proverbs 16. Proverbs 16, verse 18. It says, Pride goeth before destruction, and an haughty spirit before a fall. Destruction and a falling off are always preceded by having a spirit of pride, by having a spirit of arrogancy. That is why the nation of Israelite during the divided kingdoms fell to the Babylonians, to the Assyrians, is because they became prideful. They, did, they felt that they didn't need God anymore, so they tossed him away and followed false gods like Baal. God will never use someone that is filled with pride. He hates and abhors pride. He will never allow a proud vessel to do anything great for him. Many Christians suffer with pride and we don't even realize it. That is why pride is the most, one of the most dangerous uh, problems is because with a lot of other sins, we are aware of them, especially with our secret sins. We know that we are committing them when we do them. But pride is something that just bypasses the filters of our body and we don't even sense that we have pride. As Pastor White likes to say all the time, pride is like bad breath. No one knows, you don't know it, but other people do. Pride exalts and raises up self above even God. Uh, one who is truly uh, uh, proud will eventually put himself above God. Pride it's like a snowball. You push it downhill and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger if you don't stop it. 
And eventually you'll find yourself putting your own life above God and above his will. A prideful person will never acknowledge their need of God because why would they? They're proud in themselves. They think that they have everything that they need. They don't need God. A prideful person wouldn't need, wouldn't, wouldn't think that they need the indwelling and the empowering of God, of the Spirit. That they don't need the grace and mercy of God. Or that they don't need the love and the intercession of Christ. A very foolish mistake to be pride, prideful. Prideful people do everything in their own limited power. We're not very powerful uh, beings. Compared to God, we're so small. Harry Ironside was pondering one day why it was that in preaching services, it seemed that the Christians who were most right with the Lord always seemed to respond to preachings first. He concluded that those walking closest to the light would more readily see their imperfections. The closer we are to God in our relationship with God, the more we will be able to see how holy how perfect, how righteous God is. And in contrast, see how unholy we are. The best way to combat pride, the best way to gain humility, is to spend more time with God in our prayer closets. I remember from my 2016 uh, interning, uh, my first time interning at a church, Pastor Tim opened up um, all the interns with this small devotion. And This quote is loosely based on what Pastor Tim said. One can look at a distant mountain and comment how large it is. But another man who is standing at the foot of that mountain will truly realize how small he is compared to that mountain. The closer we get to God, the more we realize how small we are. If we're looking at God from a distance, we would think ourselves almost equal, sometimes even bigger. But if we pursue to get closer to God, we will realize how weak and how fragile we are and how much we need God. Now, this is not meant to be a discouragement. The greatest thing about being a Christian is that God is willing to use anyone as long as that vessel shows a spirit of humility As long as that person uh, relies wholly on God, that vessel will be used. You don't have to be the greatest at anything. You just need to be a willing vessel and God will use you. That's the beauty of serving God. The greatest missionary in history, at least in my opinion, was also a very humble man. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 3.8 says, Unto me who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given. The Apostle Paul, even though he accomplished so much in reaching the Gentiles, He thought of himself himself as the least of all saints. Now, us, sometimes there are people who have done nothing for God, but yet they think themselves as the greatest uh, Christian in the world. We can't have that spirit of pride. We need to be humble. The Apostle Paul didn't profess this just from his mouth alone. His actions, his ministry reflect his words. So many people, they they put on a fake spirit of humility. You can tell when someone is being fake in their their humility. Oh, I'm so humble. Oh, I'm so pathetic at everything. You can just tell that. You can just immediately tell when someone's being fake. But a true humility is is honestly seldom unnoticed. It's, It's unnoticed most of the time. 
Because a lot of people who are humble, they don't need to make themselves known. As long as they're serving God, as long as they're glorifying God, they don't need, to, they don't need their identities to be known by other people. God used a humble shepherd boy to defeat a giant that no soldier could touch. And he used that humble shepherd boy to lead the nation of Israel. In another case, God used a humble, stuttering man to help Israel escape from the Egyptians. If you truly and earnestly desire to be greatly used by God, not just slightly used by God, but to be greatly used by God, the first step is to be humble and depend entirely on him. Don't buy into the self-sufficiency message that the world crams down our throat. You look throughout social media and they always say, they always try to teach the teenagers, you, uh, you're enough. The only person you need in this world is yourself. You don't need your parents. You don't need any authorities. All you need is yourself. But that is not true. Don't buy into that self-sufficiency message. The first point, humble yourselves. The second point is to pray. Now let's turn to Psalm 145. Psalm 145. And Psalm 145, verse 18 says, The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. Now then, turn with me to Jeremiah 33, 3. Jeremiah 33, verse 3. It says, Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things, which thou knowest not. Now, this verse holds an incredible promise. When you call unto God, he will answer. There's no doubt of whether God will answer. If you call unto God, he will answer. Now, when I call my family members, when sometimes I'm, a, I'm somewhere else and I'm calling my sister or anybody else, sometimes I'm not sure if they'll actually pick up their phone. Uh, this is not always a certain thing because they, they always seem to just ignore my phone calls for some reason. But there's one person in the world that never ignores my, my calls, and that is God. When I make a request, God hears. And we see that in Jeremiah 33.3, it is a sure fact. Charles Spurgeon said this, a great preacher. Prayer is that slender nerve that moves the muscle of the omnipotent. Prayer moves the arms of God. You know, back when I was a kid, I thought it was sorcery when doctors could uh, put a hammer and hit you on the knee and your leg moves on itself. I thought that was sorcery. But when you hit a certain nerve in your body, it, it just, it automatically moves. I don't know how to explain it, but it just moves. And similarly, prayer is that slender nerve that will move the arm of God, that will move him to action. We as God's people must stop complaining about the state of the world and start praying that God will heal our nations. Christians are in possession of a tool and weapon that can move mountains, yet we willingly ignore that tool. Yet we willingly take that tool and just throw it away. Muslims, Catholics, Buddhists, Unfortunately, their prayer is amiss. They're praying to a false deity. But yet, even though they're praying to a false deity, look how committed they are in prayer. I've seen countless Catholics on the bus doing their prayer beads, their, their, their rosary prayer. 
I've seen at my different workplaces Muslims who would go, uh, who, who on their breaks would go, get down on their knees and they would prostrate themselves and would pray. Where are the Christians who are doing that? We're, we're getting beaten by secular, by false religions here. They're praying to a false God, but we are praying to a living God. But yet we're still lacking a true spirit of prayer. Like Daniel and David before us, we must follow their example of prayer and adopt the standard of praying thrice a day. I've copied them because I'm a big copycat. I like to copy a great idea when I see it. And I like to pray three times a day or three um, major sessions where I pray, like Daniel and David. The reason why I pray thrice is because I'm three times worse than the average Christian probably. I need his strength. I need his leading more so than any other Christian. I have to depend wholly on Christ. Otherwise, I, I, don't, feel, I don't feel right. Martin Luther said this, a German reformer. He said, if I fail to spend two hours in prayer each morning, the devil gets the victory throughout the day. I have so much business, I cannot get on without spending three hours daily in prayer. What a contrast to how we react. When we are so busy, that our first reaction is, I guess I don't have time to pray today. Martin Luther, his reaction was, oh, I'm so busy today, I got to pray even more. There's a certain movement, they say that cleaning and tidying up your bed is the first victory of the day. should be the first victory of the day. It sets up the rest of the day for a series of victories. But I believe that the first victory for every Christian should be whether we have opened the Bible or not. Whether we have gone into our prayer closets or not. We're worried about these mindless things of cleaning up your bed. The first victory should really be whether we conversed and had a, uh, a talk with our personal Savior. E.M. Bounds, he was an American author. He wrote 11 books, nine of which were on the topic of prayer. He said this, A desire for God which cannot break the chains of sleep is a weak thing and will, and will do little good for God. The greatest excuse that we make is that we're too tired for prayer. But yet, we willingly stay up into the wee hours of the night watching shows, watching TV, texting our friends, playing games or other activities that take up our time. Yet, we still complain that we're too tired to pray. An event that doesn't really take any physical exertion. We just need to get down on our knees and talk to God. This second point of prayer is beautifully interrelated with our first point. When we humble ourselves, we in turn increase our dependence on God. And when we are truly dependent on God, guess what? We will be more excited to come to Him in prayer. Those who have no relationship to God are never excited to go into prayer because they feel that it's just a waste of words. But that someone who knows that God, that they're actually talking to God, that they're, they're in the personal presence of God, they're so excited because you're talking to your Savior face to face almost. The sad truth is that real, earnest prayer is a lost and dying practice among Christians today. There are many who pray, but there are many who pray amiss. Many who pray without power. There are very few prayer warriors left within the Christian circles. 
An author, uh, someone said this before, it is out of date, almost a lost art. And the greatest benefactor of this age could have is a man who will bring the preachers and the church back to prayer. I'm so thankful for uh, Pastor White. Uh, in my first year of college, that, that first semester, it seemed that every single one of Pastor White's message was regarding the topic of prayer. And I think he meant that on purpose. Before that, I, I, I thought I knew very little about prayer. I knew it was required of Christians, but yet I didn't have a full understanding of what prayer was. But I'm thankful that Pastor White made a whole series on prayer because after I realized how much we need to pray, and that is what will make the difference for a revived nation is if God's people learn to pray. There are many who believe today that revival and the possibility of a third great awakening is impossible. But maybe I'm in the minority here. I believe that it is still possible today. I know the God who, who started the first and second great awakening is still present with us today. And though the rapture may come at any time, it's, we still must do our very best to minister to the people and, 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 and pray for a third great awakening in Canada, in America, wherever there may be. Some believe that a world is just way too wicked to be revived. But to them I say, and to them I bring up the city of Nineveh, a wicked city that was revived by the prophet Jonah. I don't see in our countries people sacrificing their children, right? But the Assyrians, the, Nineveh, the people in Nineveh, that was a common practice. So if a, if a city like that could be revived, I, I, I'm pretty sure that Syria can be revived. I'm pretty sure Canada can be revived. Everyone has, all believers have access to prayer. We have no excuse not to pray. So let's take after Jesus Christ and be instrumental prayer warriors. So we got to humble ourselves. We have to pray. And the third point is to seek God's face. Now turn with me to Matthew 6. Matthew 6. Matthew 6, 33 says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then Jeremiah 29, 13, you don't have to turn there, but it says, And ye shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. If you ever take um, a child and you somehow you're able to separate, for example, a child is with his parents in a mall, in a great large mall, and then somehow or other, the child loses his parents. The child gets separated for some reason. The child, the first thing that he would want to find, the first, per the first people that he wants to seek will be his parents. He could care less for all the strangers around him. All he needs is his parents, and he'll be fine. That little child will continue to cry until he meets and seeks his parents' face. Now, unfortunately, we're not like that. We're God's children, yet instead of seeking God's face first and foremost above anything else, we get distracted by, the different, by, by different things of the world. When we have a need, when we have a request or a problem that has been, in, uh, has been troubling our souls, the first person we must turn to is our Heavenly Father. Not our best friend in school, 
Not even our parents that we love so much. Not our, not our, our teacher. It should always be God. Seek God first and his righteousness. We need to have an intense and burning desire to know and be with God. A theologian once made this fo- the following remark. To be hungry is not enough. We must be starving to know God. When the prodigal son was hungry, he ate the husks with the pigs. But when he was starving, that's when he turned his face back to his father. That's when he returned home. It's not enough to be hungry to get to know God. That's a good start. But we need to be starving. We can't be feeding ourselves with the world's foods and with the world's pleasures. You know, you take a guy who's trying to uh, build up his body. And if you just give him candy, and you just give him all of this junk food, he'll never amount to much. You won't be able to fuel his body properly because you're feeding him junk. And when we're starving, we can't get into the habit of feeding ourselves junk of the world. We must go to God who will provide us sufficient meat that will help us grow. Our families, our close friends, they're a blessing. They're a good source of encouragement. And God placed them in your life for a reason, but they should never take the place of God. Amos 5.4 says, For thus saith the Lord unto the house of Israel, Seek ye me, and ye shall live. Seek ye me, and ye shall live. The key to a a thriving life, folks, is to seek God. If you seek God and God only, you have everything that you need. Pastor White, he, made, he has this uh, habit. He has this pebble or a stone in his pocket. And whenever he puts his hand into his pocket, he gets reminded to pray. He gets reminded, even though he's, he's doing errands around town or he's walking around the church, if he puts his hand in his pocket, he remembers to pray. And I, again, I'm a copycat, so I copy that. And, but instead of a wooden pebble, I had a wooden watch that I always wore, but that thing broke. Anyways, the, I used, we need, try to find a, a pendant or an item that you can carry with you everywhere. That when you touch it, when you feel it, when you look at it, you'll be reminded to look to God and to seek his face. Because we constantly get distracted. There's so many distractions from, in our world today. There's different stresses, the stress of work, stress of school. There's different uh, things that we need to attend to. So we forget to seek God. But we need to always be reminded to seek his face first. So if we humble ourselves, we pray, and we seek God's, God's face, the last point is to turn from our wicked ways. Now, this is the last verse that you'll have to turn to. 1 John 1.9. And many of you know this by heart. It's a very encouraging verse. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is perfect and holy. And anything that doesn't live up to his standards of holiness is, is he despises. He despises sin. That is why sin, that's why Adam's sin separated us from God, that separated humanity from God. 
That's why Jesus had to be sent back to earth to reconcile mankind with you, with, uh, with God, and to redeem us from the, sin, the bondage of sins. The Christian life is very difficult and distracting, and if we're not paying attention, we will find ourselves backsliding and getting involved with sins that are, that are detrimental to us. It doesn't matter if it's a little sin that will get worse over time. It doesn't matter if it's a carnal sin that's just outright wicked immediately. A sin is still a sin against God. If you have a sin, no matter how small it is, if, it's, if, it's, if you uh, haven't gotten that sin forgiven and asked for forgiveness for that sin, you will never be greatly used for God because he can't fully use you. There's something in your heart that's still taking control. You're not letting God take full control of your life. I cannot stand here and look at each person and, and, and say what you guys are struggling with because I don't have that right, I don't have that power. But that's where the Holy Spirit's discernment comes in. Every single day we need to pray, Lord, show me what I need to take out of my life. Show me what needs to be improved in my life. Show me what sins have separated your face from me. I have a daily journal that I write in every single night before I go to bed. And I write down all of the things that I, I struggled with in that particular day. And when I finish writing that journal entry, I reread it. And I ask God specifically to help me with each and every single one of those problems that I'm facing. Because at the end of the day, at the end of my life, I don't want to have let this little sin separate me from the God I love. 2 Chronicles 30 verse 9 says, For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return unto him. If you've messed up in the past, and I'm sure all of us here today, unless you're like a kid who was just born, all of us here have committed some sin in the past that we are filled with regret for. But don't be discouraged because if you confess all of those past sins to God, he's faithful and just to forgive you. In his perfect forgiveness, he forgets all of our transgressions and will no longer lay those sins against us. You look, our forgiveness is very, the, uh, mankind's forgiveness is very imperfect. We say we forgive someone, but yet the next time uh, that person does something wrong to us, we bring up this past transgression and level that against them. That's not true forgiveness. We just said that we forgive them, but we never really forgave them truly. But God, God's forgiveness is perfect. When he forgives us of our sins, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness and forgets those transgressions. It's never too late for anyone. If you are unsaved, you can accept Christ's gift of salvation tonight. And if you are saved, but maybe struggling with some secret sin, if you confess that to God tonight, he will cleanse you from that particular sin, and he will forgive you. He's a God of second, third, fourth, fifth, and for the, for the sake of time, he is a God of infinite chances. He will continue to forgive us as long as we remember to ask for repentance and ask for forgiveness. Again, this does not give us the license to continually and purposely live a life of wickedness, but just that encouragement in the knowing that even if we did mess up here, if we ask God to forgive us, he will forgive us. When we start seeking God's face, we'll start to see sin for what it really is. A wicked, 
disgusting act that displeases our perfect God. If you truly love God, you want to erase everything, no matter how small and no matter how great it may be, that will displease God. You get a, a husband and wife, a husband, a husband who loves his wife so much, he will do everything he can to eliminate all of those habits that uh, annoy his wife. I, don't, I can't tell from personal experience. I'm not married, obviously. But I think you guys can attest to that. When you love a person, you want to do everything you can so that you will not annoy that person or you will not displease that person. And the more we love God, the more we, sh- the more we will understand why we need to get rid of all of our sins. A few years ago, and to close this, a few years ago, I met this 19-year-old Filipino guy from Surrey. And we had a talk, and he made a very foolish statement. He told me, I'll preach down a revival through my eloquence and through, through a fancy message. And I believe that that statement was very foolish. If I remember his name correctly, it was me. Ivan Pagalunin. A couple years ago, when I was 19, I really wanted to, to, uh, a revival to take place in Canada. But my, the way in which to get revival, I was, I was confused about that. I thought that the way to get revival is to just preach hard. It's to just preach a fancy message, to preach, preach an eloquent message. Then revival will come to our country. What a foolish thought that was. What really changed my mentality was Pastor Tim's revival. He had a class on revival in Bible college. And the basic, to summarize our entire class, is not about what we do, but it's what, how we can call upon the Spirit, God's power. God is the one who brings down revival to our nations, not the preacher up on the pulpit. We need, as a, as a congregation, to call down the spirits of revival. We want revival in this country. We want lost men and women to be saved. Yet we're not willing to pay the price of revival. Revival will not be brought about by spectacular preaching, an eloquent message, or a fiery charge, but it is the Holy Spirit's working that brings down revival. And it's true, in history, God uses these fiery messages to stir up a revival. But ultimately, those preachers will give that glory to God. If we want, if we truly want a nationwide revival, we each have to have an individual spiritual revival. They say there are two things that are very infectious. Wickedness and a fire for God. A.W. Tozer says, there are rare Christians whose very presence incites others to be better Christians. And he says, I want to be that Christian. There are so many people that we're influencing others to a, a life of mediocrity, to a life of complacency. But we need to get on fire for God and influence those around us to be on fire as well. I'm not going to name the people who are a blessing to me and who have, been in, who have inspired me over the years. But there have been many people I've met and have come across in my life that I've, after I've met them and after I'm, I'm around their presence, I get on fire for God as well. And I want to be that same type of person that, 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 that encourages others to be on fire for God. 
I don't ever want to be a type of Christian that deadens or quenches the, the fire of other Christians. One godly man can accomplish great things through God. Now imagine a whole church filled with godly and passionate members. God can do miraculous things no matter what the location may be, no matter where, where we may be on earth. He is not bound by anything. Hence, God can stir up a revival even in our city, our Jerusalem of Surrey. If we go on in our pride, unwilling to pray, too busy to wait on God, and too insensitive to confess our sin, then we will go on without a revival. But if we as God's people humble ourselves, pray, seek his face, and turn from our wicked ways, then God has promised that he will bless us with revival. God doesn't break his promises. But now let's do our part and follow this recipe for revival. Jesus is coming again very soon. His return is imminent. So this final times, these final days, let's make a final push to see souls saved in our world. I pray each of us here tonight follow this, this recipe for revival, to be humble, to be prayer warriors, to be seekers of God, and to be abhorrers of sin and wickedness. Only if God's people will do these things will we see our nations truly healed and revived.